If you have a Bible handy, uh, open it to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 15. The lost and found section of the New Testament. <laughs> I love this passage. I decided to do uh, to take a break from Second Thessalonians because understanding with the weather and doing this live stream, it, there would probably be a number of people that weren't uh, tuned in. So we'll pick Second uh, Thessalonians up again next week. But as we look at this, I was thinking about it <clears throat> on Thursday night in our men's group. We've been going through, we just finished the book of Leviticus, going into the book of Numbers now in the, the five books of Moses, and we're on our way through the Bible. Take us about two and a half years to do so. But we were talking about the one of the things that I look for when I study God's word is, is yes, you can get bogged down in all the rules and regulations and all the stuff, but what does that tell us about the person of God, about the heart of God, about the character, the nature of God? And, and so I, I find those books to be very exciting from that standpoint because it, it really is a matter of elevating my view above what is being said specifically in the text to what is being conveyed by God himself as we go through it. This section is very similar in that regard. What we're looking at here in Luke chapter 15, as we look at the parable of the lost things. Now, uh, by way of background, in Luke chapter 13, we see that Jesus is traveling uh, with his guys, and, and we're told that he's going through the cities and the villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Now, He's been doing a lot of teaching. He's been teaching in parables a lot. He's been instructing people, giving them these spiritual principles, laying down parables, stories alongside. We'll look at that uh, as he goes. He's been he's been pretty thoroughly rankling the religious leaders in the process because the things that he spoke went directly against their whole thing. Uh, they, he was a threat to their power base. He was a threat to their theology because he spoke things with an authority that were attracting people wherever he went. By this time, we, we see, by looking at the Gospels, that he had great multitudes of people that were following him. So this would be also, he's on his way to Jerusalem because this would be his third and final Passover. Now, the previous two, that in his public ministry, he had gone as a child, and, and I'm sure uh, on through as he grew up. But in his public ministry, he went to three Passovers. The first two he would go and there they would partake of the, the, the Passover lamb, uh, the, the lamb that was sacrificed, uh, symbolically for the sins of, of the people and, and looking at God's provision for them as they had come out of Egypt and now, uh, symbolically again representing the angel of death passing over the people, uh, as they were being delivered. This third time, he wouldn't be going to, yeah, he would partake of the meal, but, the difference is here is that he would become the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom and wherever he went. And, and uh, something that I think is remarkable, and it's because it's just like me, very often the men that were traveling with him, they didn't know what was going to come out of his mouth next. Uh, they had no concept of the cross at this point. They had no concept of the resurrection. They were looking for Jesus to come to set up his kingdom then. 
Uh, <laughs> I love it. James and John's mom comes to Jesus at one point and says, hey, you know, can my sons have an office next to yours? <laughs> kind of a thing. And, and, and so as they're going along, he's doing things that really would drop their jaws. In Luke chapter 14, we see that Jesus now, he's eating at uh, the a ruler of the Pharisees' home. And, and he had upset them pretty thoroughly because he healed the men who had dropsy, we're told, uh, on the Sabbath. And that was for them, that was just absolutely forbidden. You don't do any work. They considered a healing of this man's probably lifelong disease or uh, infirmity uh, to be breaking the law of Moses. Obviously, he wasn't, uh, but he was breaking their version, their interpretation, their very liberal interpretation of, of or, or exacting interpretation of, of the law of Moses when we know that he came not to break it, but to fulfill it. Uh, so as he's doing all of this, as he's been going through, we see beginning in Luke chapter 8 that he's speaking to the people in parables. Now, in Luke chapter 8, we see the parable of the sower, and that essentially sets a pattern for how we interpret, how we look at the parables. Because after he tells the parable of the sower, the, his guys come up to him scratching their heads and they say, you know, could you please explain that to us? Again, we don't, they didn't understand what he was doing and they didn't understand that he's not talking about a guy that's going out and literally throwing seeds out on a field. Uh, he's talking about the condition of human hearts. We see four hearts represented in that parable. At any rate, he goes on to tell them, to you it's been given to know and understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but for the rest, it's in parables. So what does he mean by that? Well, there are a couple of things that parables do. The first is that parables reveal truth to those who believe, to those who have been uh, have, have come to faith in the work of Christ. They reveal truth to those who are the true people of God. The other thing that parables do is they conceal truth from those who do not, from those who are not uh, faithful, from those who are going against the things of God. They conceal the truth. Now, a, a good example of that is I remember years ago, Stacy and I were in Israel, we were on the Sea of Galilee outside of Tiberias. I've shared this before, but it was just a great example to me. And the guy was teaching us how to throw, it was a first century replica boat. It was really cool. And, and I'm looking up on the hill above Tiberias and I'm seeing this line of condos up on the top of the hill. And I kind of nudged her at one point and I, and I pointed at these condos and she's like, yeah, what are you, <laughs> this guy's trying to teach us about casting nets. And I just said, I, I told her, I said, you can't hide that. And she understood what I meant in that moment was because she knows that one of my favorite examples of the purpose of parables is that Jesus, when he said a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, he's not talking about the city. He's talking about our faith. He's talking about if I am the faithful, then, then, then I, my response to that is, ooh, he's talking about my relationship with him. He's talking about my faith. That's a, that's a really, deep thing to say, because I don't want to hide my faith. I want to shout about Jesus from the rooftops. On the other hand, someone who has not come to faith, someone who doesn't understand the things of God, would be looking at that and going, why on earth is he talking about a city on a hill? Of course you don't, you can't hide a city on a hill. It's there for everyone to see. 
Same thing with hiding a light under a bushel. You don't take a lamp and put it under a bushel. He's not talking about literally putting a lamp under a bushel. Yes, that's an example. But truly what he's getting at is that if you have the light of God, you're not going to cover it up. You're not going to hide in the dark. You want that light to shine. Yeah, I love that, that God's word tells us, let your light so shine before men that they glorify it, that they see your light and glorify your father who's in heaven. So parables reveal truth on the one hand and they conceal truth on the other. Now, great crowds, again, they're following Jesus and he's strongly challenging them as he teaches through the land uh, to discipleship and commitment. Those were the things that he was driving at as he addressed these crowds of people. Now, also understand too, even though many of the things that he had to say were very hard hitting and they were piercing, they, they would come into the heart of man and cause him to, to kind of have to come to grips with things that are going on in his life or her life. They weren't driving the people away because he spoke truth so profoundly that it was drawing people to him. And the word of God has that effect on us if we understand that these this is absolutely God's written word. It is God's speech to us. As we get a hold of that, as we understand that, we're drawn to him through his word. Uh, an unbelieving world wants to take pot shots out there. They want to they want to take apart the word of God. They want to tell you about all the problems that are there in it. And, and I'm telling you, folks, you have to approach this book, these writings, uh, through spiritual eyes. Uh, the word parable itself, it means to lay down alongside or to lay down side by side. So what Jesus would do is he would give a spiritual truth and then he would say, look, the kingdom of God is like. And then he would talk about these different things. And he would tell a story that would illustrate, that would bring light to the spiritual truth that he's getting at. That's what he's doing here in Luke chapter 15. The last words of Luke chapter 14, uh, there he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, if you are so inclined, if you have spiritual ears, if you, if you understand these things, take them to heart. Now, there are no chapter breaks in the original. And so as we get into chapter 15, again, lost and found, we see that this is one parable, the parable of the lost things, but it's also three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Now, I want you to understand too, and look for, as we go through this, I want you to look for joy and rejoicing. Uh, the first two, he literally draws it out. The third one, he demonstrates it. So, uh, let's get into this. In Luke chapter 15, verse 1, he says, uh, Luke writes, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Understand that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had divided people into two categories. There was the righteous, them, of course, and then there were sinners. That was the rest. And so they looked at themselves as being this elite group of people that had righteousness, 
even though Jesus very clearly illustrates in the Gospels that you cannot achieve righteousness by doing, you can't do enough good things. You cannot be a good enough person. You cannot help enough little old ladies across the street. You can't give enough in the tithe. You cannot do it. It is humanly impossible to earn righteousness, to gain righteousness or right standing before God through works. The only way that we achieve righteousness is through the work of the cross. And, and we'll get to that also as we go along. So they thought that they had right standing because they were doing these, these things. They, they were, had these endless lists of obedience. And that was where they, they stood. Now, everybody else that didn't do that, they literally looked down their nose at them. Jesus included. So, uh, they're thinking about this and, and, what they're doing, the way that they treat Jesus, they treat him so contemptuously, they essentially are saying, yeah, this rabbi, this this itinerant preacher from Galilee, he really doesn't know anything about God. Verse 3, so Jesus spoke this parable to them, uh, and he gets into here in verses 4 through 7, he talks about the parable of the lost sheep. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. There's that word. Again, pay attention to joy and rejoice. Verse 6, and when he comes, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me. I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that Likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just or upright persons who need no repentance. Again, poking the religious leaders in the chest with that. Look, he's saying you're either a sinner who repents or you are someone who doesn't think that you need it. Understand too, lost sheep don't repent. Lost people do. Righteous people don't repent. They looked at themselves as righteous. Sinners do. That's why in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, folks, there's just such a strong, I I just want to pause for a second, a strong caution for us to avoid any aspect of spiritual smugness in our lives. Uh, we can fall into that. We can begin to think that it's kind of, you know, I'm kind of all that and more. And, and I, I've said many times and will say many times again, if it were not for the grace of God, which rests upon my life every moment of every day, I'm down. I don't cut it. It's all about his grace. We'll see that clearly demonstrated as we get through this passage. So the second parable that he tells in, in this, the second of the three parables that makes up the parable of the lost things is the parable of the lost coin. In verses eight through 10, we read, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, here it is again. Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Jesus, again, he, I picture his eyes piercing into those standing around him, saying, likewise, I say to you, there is more. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
as we look at this, what he's talking about, I mean, this woman, she's, she's not frantic because she lost a quarter. This, in the first century, if a woman, what's implied here, when a woman got married, she would adorn her bridal headpiece with a chain that had a bunch of coins attached to it. This would be like losing her wedding ring. So she's frantic. She's got to find this. She's, and I, ladies, if you've ever lost your ring, or I remember one time my wife lost one of the stones out of her wedding ring, and, and it was frantic in the house trying to find that thing. That's the idea here. And so he's saying, look, you got to understand, in this culture, this is so important to this woman that she finds that thing that was lost. Jesus, again, connecting the parable, elevating it to the spiritual truth. There's more joy in the presence of the angels of heaven over one sinner who repents. Again, lost coins don't repent. Lost people do. Now, notice that Jesus adds the repentance thing in these first two parables. And the emphasis is not on the thing being lost. The emphasis is in the joy and the rejoicing in finding that one lost thing. So now we're going to get into the third and final parable in this sort of compound parable, the parable of the lost son. We look at this as the story of the prodigal son or the prodigal. That's where I want to spend the bulk of our time here uh, this morning. In verse 11, it says, Then he said, A certain man had two sons. Now, before we get into this, I want to talk to you. I want to, I want to clarify. It will really help you to unpack this parable if you understand the roles of the people in this parable and what they rep- who they represent. Now, the younger son will find out that the younger son represents, talking about the people that are there with Jesus as he's teaching this, the younger represents the sinners and the tax collectors, the ones that they were looking down their nose and thinking, yeah, well, that's the people that he hangs out with. The older son in this parable is representative of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. The father here will see that as he goes through this parable and as he talks about the father, that the father here represents the heart of God. Verse 12. He says, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Now, understand this guy, he, he says, give me, give it to me, father, give it to me, dad. I want what is due to me. But when he says this, essentially what he's saying is, is father, I want your provision, but I really don't want your presence in my life. I want what you can give me but I'm really not down for a relationship with you. Uh, tough stuff. I, 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 he's, he's saying, look, I don't really care about you. I care about the goods. I care about my inheritance. So verse 12, again, finishing verse 12. So he divided to them his livelihood. Now, notice he says to them. He divides to both sons his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. So this guy goes and he squanders. He blows through his inheritance with reckless, wasteful, sinful living. So the question becomes, why a far country? Why would he want to do that? Why does he pull himself completely away from his father, go to a far country? And folks, I would submit to you that this is the definition of rebellion. 
He wants to pull himself away from any accountability to his father whatsoever. Think about it. He's not, he wouldn't want to get involved going and doing the things that he was going to be doing in his own community. He doesn't want his relatives. He doesn't want his neighbors. He doesn't want the people in town to know what he's up to. He's taken himself away from any, any accountability whatsoever. And, you know, as I think about this, I, I, I think a far country and, and for us, rebellion, going to a far country may not be getting into my, my truck and going to some other place, but a far country might manifest as rebellion in my life by the things that I look at on my computer. It might be a far country, it might be that coworker or that friend that you're beginning to think maybe understands you a little more than your spouse. A far country might be anything that I put in the place of Jesus Christ, my relationship with him in my life, anything that I put ahead of that. And that in an aspect of rebellion, I'm saying, you know what, Father, I want the relationship, or I want the goods, but I don't really want the relationship. I want to remove myself from any accountability. And that's what this son does. The younger son does. In verse 14, he says, but when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land and he began to be in want. Now, he hasn't hit bottom yet. Uh, we'll see that. He's, 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 things are not going real well for him. Like I said, he blew through his inheritance. Uh, he spent it all. And there's a severe famine there. Now he's starting to try to figure out, okay, what am I going to do now? Since he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, if you understand anything about Jewish boys, going out to feed pigs was really not the ideal occupation that you wanted to, to take on. Anything that had to do with swine, anything that had to do with an animal to split the hoof, was absolutely forbidden, absolutely unclean in their culture. So here this guy is, he goes out, he begins to be in want. He's still not thinking, you know, maybe I didn't have it so bad. He's still thinking, yeah, I'm going to work this out myself. And so what does he do? He turns to the world for solutions to his problems. He relies upon himself. This is self-reliance. I know, I have an idea, I'll get a job. Oh, I guess I'm going to be feeding pigs. Well, not the ideal thing, but if that's what it takes, then that's what it takes. That's sort of what he's looking at as he goes through this. It reminds me too, in Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, one of my favorite uh, passages when it comes to looking at rebellion and God's hand, God's heart in that, is Hosea writes, come, And let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. Hard-hitting words. Hard-hitting. This younger son is getting himself into trouble, and he's getting deeper into it as he goes. Verse 16 says, And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Folks, we live in a world of give me, just like this kid. Father, give me that stuff that belongs to me. Nobody gave him anything. When he got out there and he, and he had exhausted his father's inheritance, where are his friends? 
Where are the people that were there, right there with him, elbow to elbow, when he was partying it up, when he was living in rebellion, when he was doing that thing? And I'll tell you what, relationships in the world can be like that. Uh, I know I've many times over the years heard of people coming out of a drug culture where it's like, yeah, you know, I, I ran out of money or I ran out of drugs and all of a sudden my friends were gone. All of a sudden the party was over and there I was sitting at the bottom and this guy's not quite there yet. He's close. Interesting thing about this is he's treated the same by his friends, so-called friends, in the same way as he had treated his father. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, and what that means is that when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? He came to himself. Folks, that is the pivot point in this entire parable. That is the point. I'll tell you what, for this this boy that is represented in this parable that Jesus is telling in front of the religious leaders, in front of the sinners and tax collectors, and when he is telling this, I would imagine you could have heard a pin drop in the room. He says he came to himself. That would have been the worst, best day of this young man's life. I've mentioned many times before when my kids were growing up, I used to I'd tell them, you know what, there's the, the short way and there's the long way. You know, you could go, you could study the Bible in your own devotions or doing like we're doing here where we're, we study through God's word together. You can say, you know what, that really clicks that, that I, I, I sense the Holy Spirit, you know, bearing witness to me about that. I'm going to apply that to my life. Or there's the long way. This kid is taking the long way. And, and folks, in, in all honesty, I've got some experience with the long way. And it's not fun when God allows us to strip out enough line, essentially to hang ourselves. And then he's there in a moment. Uh, I remember praying with the worship team many years ago, probably 30 years ago. We would pray before service like we do here. And one of the ladies said, uh, Father, I'm so grateful that no matter how many steps away from you that we take, it's always only one step back. And that's what this guy's going to experience as he comes to himself. He says in verse 18, I'll arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, understand when he comes to himself, That is the very front end of repentance. That means that the lights have come on and just the thought, you know what? Maybe this wasn't a good idea. Maybe I need to think about this. Maybe I need to do business with God on this. So now he's in this place. Now he's beginning to to realize, you know, maybe it wasn't so bad at dad's house after all. But but I, I've so blown it. I, and he you got to understand, you got to know this guy was probably under condemnation, condemning himself for the things that he had done. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And he goes on, he says, make me like one of your hired servants. Now, in that culture, they owned the, the slave culture was huge in the Roman Empire, millions upon millions of slaves. Now, a homeowner or the father in this in this case, he would have indentured slaves, Dulos, that's the, the ones that were, they were willful slaves. They were people that were part of the household. Now, at harvest or when there were special things going on, he would bring in hired slaves. And in our culture, in our economy, it would be like, 
well, we've got too much work to do, so let's hire a temp. All right. Now, when you ha- and in my business life, I, I there would be times where I would hire a temp. I would hire somebody to do the extra the work. I had no obligation to that person whatsoever. They were outside of my normal employee status. They were a temp. Now, there are times that they became permanent employees, but a temp is somebody you have no obligation to. What this guy is saying is saying, give me the lowest position in your house, Father. Make me like a temp. Make me like one of your hired slaves. I love it. He goes, this guy goes from the world of give me to the world of make me one of your hired servants. This is a penitent heart. This is a guy that from the moment that he says that that we're told that he comes to himself, he has an attitude shift that is very, very plain to see as you look at this. He has a penitent heart. And if you understand repentance, folks, that simply means to turn away from. It means to turn around. If you understand the essence of repentance in our lives, this is where I am going along, going a particular direction in my life, And God gets my attention through whatever means. And our stories are different. Our testimonies are different. But God is very faithful to get our attention. As I realize that and I turn, that's what repentance is. It means to turn around. I'm going one direction. God has gotten my attention. He has spoken to my heart. Whatever the circumstances are, maybe I'm at the bottom. And that was bottom for this guy when he came to himself that was the bottom. Very often, you, you hear that, that term, well, they haven't hit bottom yet. And I would submit to you that bottom is where you make it. Bottom is where you are so fed up with where you're at that you know it's time to make some changes. That's repentance. So that's where this guy's at. I want to talk about four signs of a penitent heart. The first is to realize what's been lost. Oh, maybe it wasn't so bad at dad's house after all. Maybe my father's love was something that I really kind of took for granted. And I need to maybe think about that. The second thing is to recognize my sin. Uh, Folks, you can call it whatever you want. At the end of the day, rebellion towards God is sin. Uh, and, And recognize it as that. I've sinned against my father. I did the wrong thing. I went the wrong direction. And that's the attitude of this younger son here in this parable. The third is to remember that it's about how God sees me. He says, I'm not worthy to be your son. And and folks, I understand that because, again, this is not about how badly the son blew it. This is about the father's heart, and we're going to get to that shortly. But as we look at that, as we remember that it's about how God sees me, not necessarily how I might see myself, it's as though God says, yeah, I know. I know you've blown it. I know that you've been living away from me. I know you've had that secret aspect of rebellion, but I made provision for that. His name is Jesus. He went to a cross for you. The fourth thing here is to respond to my father in humility. Great humility showing in this parable is the son now, I'm not worthy to be your son. I'm not worthy to be in your house. But you know what? You're all I've got. I really need to come back to my father's house. 
Verse 20, it says, And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. I remember when my children were teenagers, there were times where they stayed out way too late. And I mean, that was only a couple of hours. And finally, sometimes I would be pacing. Sometimes I'd end up out on the porch pacing, looking at whatever car drove by, wondering if that was them, worried. I wonder how long, in this story anyway, it's easy to imagine the father waiting. And folks, when we're in rebellion, I love that God's word tells us that, that he's not slow, he's patient wanting for all to come to repentance. That's our Father's heart. And that's what Jesus is bringing out here. It says, so what does this tell us about our Father's love? That's the point. Now, he doesn't tackle his son. He doesn't run out to him. says he ran out and met him, fell on his neck, kissed him. What that means is that he kissed him repeatedly, that this is a continual thing. He smothers this guy with love. And the Father is the one who takes the action before the son could even get there. Goes out, meets him, falls on his neck, kisses him. He doesn't tackle his son, grab him by the nape of the neck and say, look at what a mess you've made of your life. This younger son knows what a mess he'd made of his life. Rather, it says that his father had compassion on him. He doesn't go and say, oh, it's okay. Everything you did was fine. No, he knew that there were consequences. He knew that the son was paying the consequences. And yet, and yet, He has compassion on him as he's turning now from his sin, as he's turning now to come back to his father. Verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and no longer worthy to be called your son. Now he doesn't get a chance to finish his speech before the father cuts in. Why? Because with repentance comes restoration. I, You know, often I think about 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, that if we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us for our sins, to cleanse us from some unrighteousness. It's not what it says. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let's eat and be merry for this son uh, my, this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. There's that theme that runs through this entire series of parables. It says, and they began to be merry. Now, I want you to note the father's rejoicing. He says, look, bring out the robe, get the ring, get the sandals, get that special cap, that one that we have been feeding, fattening up for a special occasion. Yeah, that one. We're going to have a party. Why does he do that? This is an illustration, folks, that when we turn, when we come to God with a penitent heart, when we come to him with a heart that's sorrowful over our sin, that we are fully restored. He doesn't say, yeah, you get to be a hired slave here. We're going to give you a trial basis, son. No, he doesn't do any of that. He fully restores this this son on the spot. And he elevates him to equal status as to what he had before anything ever went wrong. I think that's remarkable. But again, it is a symbol in this parable of our Father's heart towards us. 
Now, I would love to say that that's the end of this parable because that's it. You know, hey, the sun's home, everything's good, everything's great, the end, and they all lived happily ever after. However, it's not the end. Verse 25. Now, his older son was in the field. In other words, he's out working. (laughs) Hold on to that. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Now, remember, too, as Jesus tells us, the Pharisees in their complaint, he's out there with these sinners and tax collectors and all these lowlifes kind of a thing. It, It says in verse 26, so he called one of his servants and asked, what these things meant. And he said to them, to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. And therefore his father came out, pleaded with him, please, son. This guy wasn't looking for his brother. He's outside pouting. And the father comes and pleads with him, Son, don't take away my joy in this. Understand the transaction. Understand. I divided my the inheritance to both of you. He went out and squandered it. I thought he was gone. I thought he was dead. I thought he was lost. But now he's found. He's alive. He's come home. He's been restored. Think about the religious leaders as Jesus is telling this parable. Here's this rabbi sitting there in commoners' clothing, sitting in front of the scribes and the Pharisees, as they're thinking, saying, you really don't know what God is like. And here he is, God the Son, dirt in his hair, crumbs in his beard, illustrating some of the most compelling truths that one could know about God. Verse 29, so the older brother, so he, the older brother, Uh, answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. Understand and pay attention to I and me in this, because it's all about him, of course. (laughs) That's what the legalist does. These many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours, notice he doesn't say this brother of mine. He says, as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, You killed the fatted calf for him. The son has the same posture as the one that took off. He's got the same give me attitude. Yeah, it's veiled. I've been hard. I've been working hard. I've been doing it. I've been doing the stuff. I've been right here under your roof, dad. But you never gave me any of that. I would submit to you that there are two sons in the story that went to a far country. Only difference is that one of them never left home. Verse 31, and he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that I have is yours. That's a remarkable statement. Wait a minute. I thought that he divided his inheritance among both of his sons. But you've got to understand something about our father, truly about the the father heart of God. It's not about division. It's about multiplication that he he heaps his grace upon our lives in 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 innumerable ways that we could never measure we cannot exhaust the grace of god that's poured out it just keeps flowing and it keeps flowing and yeah i've done some doozies in my life and the grace of god has covered me the key is that i recognize where i'm at the key is that i 
I turn from that thing. I identify my sin as sin, agree with God that it is, and that I come home and that I experience his restoring hand in my life. Verse 32, it was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. As we look at this, and going on in chapter 16, they literally deride him. That's the word there that is used in the New King James. They're mocking him, turning their noses up at him. And their their posture of, of this guy doesn't know anything about God when they're actually dealing with God himself. And this parable, wonderful, beautiful illustrations about the heart of our Father in, in not just restoring, but pouring it on in our lives. Inestimable blessings, the blessings of belonging to Him. As we wrap up, I want to look at three things. The first is this. How many prodigals do you see in this story? I'm thinking three as I read this. There's the younger brother, there's the older brother, and me. Now, he didn't tell this parable in a religious vacuum. He told it to give great hope to people like you, people like me. The father came out to both sons. The father comes out to you and to me. And folks, there's a predisposition in all of our hearts towards, towards wasteful, prodigal living towards the attitude of the sons in this story, where one is wasting his inheritance away, the other is rigid and unbending and not compassionate, not gracious, very religious. Folks, just truth be told, I and I am securely at home in my father's house. But there was a time earlier in my relationship with the Lord where I went to a far country, but I came to myself. I got out of that situation, gotten as far from there as I could. And I would invite you that if there is something in your life that God is putting his hand on this morning, turn, get out of that far country, come home to your father, experience him running out to meet you, falling on your neck, kissing you, fully restoring you to status as a full-blown son or daughter. That's his heart. That's what Jesus is bringing out in this. He's not bringing out, look at all these people who sin. He's hanging out with sinners and harlots, remember? Sinners and tax collectors. He's hanging out with people that, you know, in many areas of their life, they just never were really able to get it right until they met him. How many of us relate to that? The point in this is one son is drawn, the other is repulsed. The one who is drawn realized there's just no place like home in my father's house. Second thing I want to look at here is, do you need to flex your joy muscles? <laughs> in all three parables, the parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost son, joy and rejoicing are intentionally amplified by Jesus. Why? Because it's the heart of God. Because religious people have no joy. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. I've known some very staunch and very staid people. And I'm not talking about personality differences. Some of us are quieter than others. That's fine. But joy is a byproduct of the Holy Spirit. It is one of the main aspects of the fruit of God's Spirit in our lives. 
The religious leaders in this account were totally misrepresenting God, and they were totally devoid of any joy whatsoever. The other thing about this is because is is why do we need to flex our joy muscles? It's because our Father delights in His children coming home, finding joy in our Father's house. Finally, and this is sobering: Are you in a far country presently? Maybe the externals look good, but there's an area of rebellion in your own heart. Come to yourself. Come home. In the first and second parables, the concept of repentance is shown. Jesus talks about it there. But in the third one, it's different because it's not just a concept. It's demonstrated as a living reality. Understand that. That God is in that. Repentance is, it is a gift. You know, when I hear people say, well, you know, you need to repent. There's t- there's a place in my flesh where I don't like that term. I don't want, I don't want to repent. But in God's economy, you got to understand it is something that God put there so that we can stay fresh and vibrant and alive and, and current with our Father. So if you're in a far country, perhaps no one else knows, get out, repent, turn. Come to yourself. Come home to your Father. Repentance is an essential ingredient in gaining a relationship with God. Yeah, that's true. But it's also an essential ingredient in maintaining our relationship with God. As I said, it's a privilege to turn, to repent to God. If you don't know Christ, and perhaps you have never uh, done business with him And for the first time, if you don't have a relationship with God, it starts with truly repenting, with saying, you know what? I'm sick and tired. I'm fed up with my life the way that it's been going. I need to turn around. I need to come to my father's house. I need to just throw myself at his mercy. I will guarantee you on the basis of God's word, you will find compassion and restoration in his arms. If you've never come to Christ. It's a simple process of saying, you know, Lord, I've lived my life in rebellion towards you. I identify with the younger son in this story. And my life doesn't work. It's broken. It's bogged down. It's meaningless. Understand that Jesus went to that cross for you. That when he hung on that cross, that he paid the penalty for all of our rebellion. And now he simply beckons us to come. And if you're doing that, it's simply saying, I'm tired of my old life. I'm turning from the old life. And Jesus, I'm trusting that you did that work for me. That's the essence of the gospel. That's the essence of what Jesus is illustrating here in this parable, saying, look, it's not about whether or not your life is broken. It's not about whether or not you've been in rebellion. It's not not about you being in a far country. It's about being home. It's about living a life that is worth living, about living a life counted as a son or a daughter of the living God. That's his specific will for us. I pray that you're walking in that and that if you're not, it's only a heartbeat away. No matter how many steps away we take from God, it's always only one step back. Let's pray. Father, As we look at this parable, these series of parables, 
seeing how important joy and rejoicing is to you, knowing that that is your heart over one sinner who repents, over one person who's just gotten tired of it all enough to to say, you know, maybe there's a better way. Maybe I need to turn to God. Maybe I need to come back to my father's house. Maybe I need to turn and get right. I pray for anyone within the sound of my voice, Lord, uh, doing this online and perhaps people watching the recording later, whatever it is, Lord, we know that your word is true and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide between the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And Lord, if your word is piercing hearts this morning, I pray that it would have the desired result. We wouldn't walk away under condemnation, but that we could walk away fully restored, enjoying the relationship that we have with you, enjoying the fact that your grace is just powerfully in place in our lives. We give ourselves afresh to you, Father. We thank you for this time. We pray now that you would work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.